service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. Author Michael Veet describes it as the forgotten battle that saved the Pacific. His latest book is titled The Battle of the Bismarck Sea, The Forgotten Battle That Saved the Pacific, and he joins us for this two-part podcast series and tells us about his book. So joining us on the line from Melbourne is best-selling author, actor, broadcaster and RAF Reserve Officer Michael Veach. Michael, thank you for joining <laughs> us today. Thank you, David. Very nice to be here. Now, the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, the forgotten battle that saved the Pacific, is the title of your latest book. Why is it forgotten? Well, it's that's one of the things I can't answer, um, and that's open to all sorts of people's opinions. Why have we forgotten so much of our history, so much of our military history, and so much of the history that we can be awfully proud of, David? Um, why has it been forgotten? Uh, well, I guess you have to ask, why was Kokoda forgotten for many years? I mean, well, I... You and I probably grew up when it was called the Kokoda Trail, which was never referred to in its day as the Kokoda Trail, trail being an American word. Mm. And um, um, for all his faults, I, I think we have to thank Prime Minister Paul Keating for one of the people who actually brought the Battle of Kokoda to Australians' attention. But uh, we're a funny lot, Australians. What can I say? We, I've often said that if we were Americans... Things like Bismarck Sea and Kokoda and uh, and forty the the um, defence of Moresby, which I have done a previous book about the forty four day defence of Moresby, would all be on our stamps. But we're not. Now I'm 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 glad we're not Americans, by the way, David, and I hope you can go with that. But <laughs> um, I don't really know. But it's it's a shame that uh, these um, uh, great epochs of our history have been forgotten and uh, that's why I write my books to actually bring new generations of readers and people who are interested in this extraordinary period of the Second World War um, to light. Can you give us a geography lesson and remind listeners of where the Bismarck Sea is? Yes, it's often confused to people, um, people saying, oh, you're doing a book book about the battleship Bismarck. I said, mm. no, it's not. As we know, Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, was the great um, statesman who united Germany in 1870. And uh, that immediately set off um, Germany's um, quest to join the colony, the, the great scramble for the late, the late great scramble for colonies in the last couple of decades of the 19th century. And Germany was... Um, one of the last takers, and we felt very jealous about all for the reason why the First World War got going. And so one of their uh, colonial acquisitions was um, the Southwest Pacific, um, very close to us, and big chunks of Papua and New Guinea and the Solomon Islands uh, and all these little islands like uh, Micronesia, uh, little island groups to the north of New Guinea became German colonies. So they named an area of ocean just to the north of New Guinea um, between 
the the north east coast of New Guinea and the two big islands, New Britain and New Ireland. They named it after their great hero, Otto von Bismarck, hence it's, it, it was and still is the Bismarck Sea. Mm. And that's where we're talking. And in terms of the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, can you give us an idea of the lead-up to the battle and then we'll go through the battle itself in the aftermath? Sure. Well, this we're talking the latter part of 1942 when certainly the Japanese had come down from their... 100-day blitz that began with Pearl Harbor, and not just Pearl Harbor, but attacks on Malaya and Hong Kong and Wake Island and all sorts of other places in their um, one-hit strategy, which was to conquer all very quickly. There was no plan B, um, and that's what they planned to do and very nearly succeeded. The rush to conquer... uh, uh, by Imperial Japan, the Ember 1941, was simply extraordinary and very su- successful. They rolled up all these places like Malaya. They crashed into Singapore, the impregnable Singapore. And um, they could have kept going if they hadn't had a bit of what they call v- uh, um, victory disease or victory fever where you can't quite believe how well you've done and you kind of doubt your own hand if they'd actually sailed into port moresby harbor in say maybe um uh, uh, january or february uh 1942 they probably could have taken it and that would have been it they didn't um they then uh, paused the great then they tried to actually expand their uh initial conquests and tried to go further north and tried to go further east and they failed to do that, and that was what the Battle of Midway essentially was about, and where they lost all their aircraft carriers. Um, then we began. Then, of course, the great uh, attempt to, to take Moresby over the um, Owen Stanley Ranges that we all know about, the epic of the Kokoda Track, and they uh, got to within sight of Moresby, and then were gradually pushed back. Well, they actually uh, were, were called back, the, the, the Japanese, but they were also pushed back. Then towards the end of 42, mopping them up at the tail end or the, the, the beginning end of the Kokoda Track, which are the uh, Japanese bases of Buna, Buna and Gona little villages and mission stations before the war. They were on the north coast of New Guinea where the Japanese had fortified them. And the Americans started to come in and the Australians fought these dreadful battles where disease was rife and the conditions were ghastly uh, in New Guinea. Now, at this point, Japan was down but not out. And people forget that. People forget that after... People often tend to think that after... Japan was uh, foiled to take Moresby at Kokoda and also at Milne Bay, which is all, which I've, a book of, I've also written about, a story I've also written about. They were basically done and dusted. It's not, uh, nothing could be further than the case. Japan in the first um, uh, month of 1943 was still a tremendous force to be reckoned with. They had a massive population, large industries, and a completely clear supply line from Japanese mainland through their big bases that they'd picked up, thank you to the former German colonies we were talking about before, particularly a place called Truck Lagoon in the middle of the Pacific that the Japanese fortified as a huge Navy base in the interwar years in the 1920s. Well, they used that, and there was a clear line, um, a relatively short line of supply 
from Japan to their uh, outer extremities uh, of their in, of their conquests in New Guinea. Now, yes, they'd lost their carriers, but what they decided to do was to go back to their initial uh, footprint of conquest and really try and take Moresby. If they could get Moresby and hold New Guinea, that's really was their main aim. Because even though they probably had no intention and certainly no capability of of uh, of invading or taking Australia in any meaningful way, all they had to do was to basically check us out of the war by controlling the sea lanes to the north, controlling the supply routes from the United States to Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne. Um, uh, because then Australia would have been very isolated and we would have been a, a, effectively a kind of a, uh, well, I, um, I hesitate, hesitate to say the word spent force, but certainly removed from the picture. That's what they still intended to do. They had um, uh, failed to take it by direct assault for the Battle of the Coral Sea. They'd failed to take Moresby um, over the overland route. They'd failed at Mill Bay. And they, so it was going to be fourth time lucky. So what they thought they could do was to build up their bases that they already had on the northern coast of New Guinea, particularly the town of Ley that they had invaded and taken, I think, in January 1942. And they'd built up significantly um, um, since that time. Um, They tested it by, in January 1943, the first weeks of January 1943, by sending a convoy down from Rabaul, that's the other big navy uh, a big port that they'd got in the beginning of the war the former australian um uh, uh, administrative capital of our australian territory of papua on the big island of new britain so they had that and they wanted to test the waters by sending a convoy from rabaul to lay i think on january the first couple of weeks of january and it was a wild success they were over the moon the Japanese. They realised we've got the Australians, we've got the Americans, because even though we lost Buna, um, we lost Kokoda, they're now exhausted, which was absolutely true. Our armies were spent at this uh, uh, stage of the war. The Americans were only really getting going. They had no idea of the ferocity of the Japanese fighting man. Um, we had taken a battering, even though it had been a kind of a sort of a victory at Kokoda, but the Australian army was not in good shape. So that the Japanese thought, we, all we need to do is build up our northern coast New Guinea bases, and from then we can take uh, places like Wau, W-A-U, which was a uh, an airstrip in the mountains not far from Leh. There'd been an assault on it earlier, but it had failed. But they reckoned that they could get it the next time. So places like Salamaua, Wau, Lei, were all the Japanese reckoned they needed to restart their conquest of Moresby, and then it would have been game over. The convoy that um, arrived at Lei, virtually unmolested, they'd lost a ship in it. Now, you know, uh, these are big old freighters that the Japanese had, and they were prepared to lose up to half of their convoys in, 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 in this period of the war, and they still would have considered it a success. They, they lost one ship, and most of the supplies for that were offloaded to uh, another ship. When the news of this convoy having gotten through uh, came 
uh, filtered to the um, American and Australian uh, um, higher commands. They considered it a catastrophe and a disaster. They said, this can't happen. They even tried to attack it by air, but they just got it wrong. They had no system. The B-17s went in alone. There was no coordination. They realized the navigation of the American pilots was poor. Their morale was poor. The B-17s had basically been the clapped out jobs that had sort of limped over from the fall of the Philippines. Um, half of them were, were you know, you know, couldn't get oil filters, couldn't get air filters, couldn't get the right oil, couldn't get bearings. They were sort of uh, parked wingtip, wingtip to wingtip at Townsville and um, Charters Towers waiting for supplies to come in. The men, the American airmen were demoralised and had no real kind of um, <coughs> um, esprit de corps. And then this Japanese convoy arrives, reinforces their base at Ley very successfully. It's considered a very, very bad uh, uh, chapter in the war in Japan. Um, this is towards, so, so this, this, this was the climax of a couple of things um, uh, 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 at this period of the war. Earlier, the, 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 there had been, uh, uh, thank goodness, a new American commander arrive, Army Air Corps commander, and called George Kenny. He came to Australia and was like, oh, bloody hell, what have I got to deal with here? Here are these thousands of men of my Air Force, Army Air Force, dispirited, badly supplied, no morale. I've got to build them up again. And that's what he did. He also um, developed new bombing techniques, low-level bombing. He was a proponent of low-level bombing. He wasn't part of the kind of bomber mafia that uh, operated in Europe where you had to, you had to hit a town from 18,000 feet with a 1,000 aeroplane. He was much more uh, strategic, Kenny, than that. And he said, well, you can't see anything anyway. It's all jungle. You've got to get down low to the treetops to bomb anything anyway. So let's try it that way. So gradually, the last few months of 1942, he was building up his Air Force, which he was able to rename the 8th Air Force. And then this disaster happens. Uh, and... Um, the Australians, American settlers, look, if the Japanese can keep doing this, we're stuck. There's nothing we can do. We can't attack them. We've got no technique for attacking their naval convoys. They often arrive in poor weather, so we can't see them. Um, uh, they're often very heavily defended from the air. They're escorted by Japanese destroyers that Japanese destroyer force was probably the most efficient naval force of just about any naval force of the Second World War. Uh, the Japanese destroyer commanders and crews and the ships themselves were absolutely brilliant. And they had thousands of them, which they'd been busily making during the, the, the 20s and 30s. And they were very heavily armed, particularly with anti-aircraft fire. And they were a very efficient um, um, uh, mode of naval warfare. They're often the... Uh, uh, um, uh, convoys were often escorted by several Japanese destroyers and are a formidable thing to attack from the air. It was then discovered after the success of this um, Japanese convoy, which I think was called Convoy 18, then our uh, wonderful code breakers in Melbourne, M Melbourne was the kind of Bletchley Park of uh, uh, and Townsville were the Bletchley Park of Japanese code breaking in the Allied forces during the Second World War. They picked up the Japanese were, were, were cock a hoop about this convoy 18, and they were planning another one, a much bigger one, 
which was going to set sail from Rabaul, and they knew this because they, because they broke the Japanese code, on February 28th, the last day of February 1942. It was going to head somewhere in New Guinea. They didn't know where yet, and they knew they had to stop it because um, they picked up that it was going to be some, something up to um, 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 eight ships, I think, eight big freighters, crammed and you could, with the Japanese army at this stage, you, you could put an entire division in a convoy of that size, not just a couple of battalions that had gone through before and they realised they had to stop it. They had to find a way to stop it. Entered to the scene, the Australian contingent of this story in the form of a kind of a, 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 a kind of one of our really early flying war heroes who'd done been a short Sunderland pilot in the, few, in the first couple of years of the war with uh, 10 Squadron, um, uh, Wing Commander William Ball Gehring. Short, stocky, gruff, bad-tempered, probably a bit of a bully, if his son, who I've become friends with, is anything to go by. Yeah. Um, but he, when he came back from having won one of Australia's first DFCs in the Second World War, he came back to Australia a war hero, and his tour gone, his tour um, uh, uh, brilliantly carried out. And they said, well, what do we do with you? Um, and and Gehring said, oh, well, I'm gonna, the, the Japanese are going to come into the war soon, so put me up to Townsville and I can um, help run the Air Force. And they go, oh, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, whoa, whatever. You think that's what they gave him that job. He knew exactly what, what he was doing. And he knew how badly organised the Royal Australian Air Force was. He'd even done things in Britain. He'd even gone and... Um, um, he'd, he'd sort of watched the Battle of Britain taking place and how well the, the RAF was organised. And he went into a couple of those wonderful ops rooms and just watched how they did it. And even pinched, pinched a couple of the pieces, pieces of stationery of Royal Air Force sort of, you know, um, um, you know aircraft sighted sort of stationery and, and copied it and set up his own kind of uh, um, um, base uh, and control station in Townsville before the Japanese came into the war. They thought he was mad. Of course, then Japan did come into the war, and they thought he was a genius. And he was, in a way. Now, he was in, in charge of the Royal Australian Air Force northwest area. Uh, sorry, northeast area. And uh, I'm confused because they kept changing. It was just north and northeast. And I can't remember if it started northwest and northeast or started just north, and they made it northwest. But anyway, the area of control, which was where we were fighting, was Wing Commander, maybe been a group captain at this stage, I can't remember, but he was in charge of it. Now, he was good friends with, with Kenny, the American general in charge of the 8th Air Force. They were good mates. They were very similar people. They were kind of outliers. They weren't fancy. They weren't friends with politicians or senators they um didn't have a glamorous sort of social life they were just very very uh, uh accomplished warriors both of them and he knew and he was very blunt about telling the americans you don't really know what you're doing you you're you're, you're turning out boys with no navigation skills Gehring was a a, a one of the world's great navigators uh, navigator par excellence navigation was his big thing so he was very concerned when stories about the american thunderbolts and this is a true story a flight of american thunderbolts arrived in cairns were ordered to it was one of the few or was it like i think it was thunderbolts someone who um, um, peter dunn who does australians at war told me it was thunderbolts so i'll believe peter the story that um, 
American fire departments came out and were told to go from Cairns to Port Moresby. So how do we get there? Well, just go north. Just follow the coast and just keep going north and you'll see land and turn right and then you'll see a harbour and you'll see the Estuary. Easy. So they did. And the American, American boys flew up from Cairns, followed the um, Cape York Peninsula, then followed around the tip of Cape York Peninsula and started flying south because they were told to keep the coast on their left, ran out of petrol and crash landed in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Oh, Thank you very much. Yeah. And this is true. Yeah. And this is the standard of training that the American pilots, I mean, there's nothing to take away from American pilots. They were wonderfully brave and terrific fellows, all of them. Um, and they were very supportive of the Australians and grateful for the Australians, um, uh, even though we were farther lesser uh, player in this massive story. But Gehring said, this convoy that we know is coming is going to get through unless we have a plan. And he went to General Kenny's 2IC, um, and his name has escaped me for a moment, but it was outside a tent, a command, con command and control tent in, uh, at 12 miles strip at Port Moresby. And in the sand or in the, the clay or the mud, Bull Gehring got this senior American general and said, this is what we have to do. And he got a stick and he drew a diagram. And he said, this is how we have to attack. We've got to have, and he drew a kind of what looked like a big triangle, like a beehive. And at the top of the beehive, he said, right, these are your lightnings. These are your top cover. Underneath you have your high altitude, your fortresses and the, handful of B-24s that have arrived at this stage from the United States. Then you have your medium bombers, your, your B-25 Mitchells. Then down below you have your specially adapted uh, strafing um, attack Mitchells, B-25s, and then you also have your low-level skip bombing um, uh, B-25s. Then under that you have the people who go in first, which are my boys, the Bristol Bowfighters of 30 Squadron RAAF. This is how you're going to have to do it. Otherwise, you will fail. And the American um, general said, just thank God, he said, Bull, you're right. We don't have a plan. We failed last time. And nothing I know of is telling me that we're not going to fail again. So we're going to try your plan. And they went straight over to... to General Kenny, and Kenny agreed, and he said, well, what do we do? And he said, well, we have to have a rehearsal. Now, this is unheard of for the Americans. What, a rehearsal? Yeah, we're going to have a rehearsal. We've got to do this at a rehearsal, and we'll attack an old freighter that's been lying on a, sorry, passenger ship that's been lying on a Port Moresby reef for 20 years. It was called the Proof, P-R-U-T-H. And the very next day, that night, they wrote out the command, the um, teleprinters started spitting out the information. Uh, they went around. Thank goodness all the airstrips were pretty close together. So that day, and it was almost as the Japanese convoy was leaving Rabaul, they went around and briefed all the pilots, saying, this is what you have to do. You guys go in first. This is, this is your timetable. Stick to your timetable. Both fighters, you go in first. First, strafe the ships from stem to stern. Then the medium bombers go in. Then the high-level bombers come in. And, um, and if there's Japanese fighter cover, uh, we'll have the lightnings above, above, um, uh, uh, above them getting, giving fighter protection. So they had a rehearsal. 
Nothing like this had ever, ever been done in just about the history of air warfare. And that's, um, uh, uh, I mean, you didn't rehearse. It, 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 it wasn't a play. It wasn't a piece of theatre. It was something that you got orders and you did. The idea of having to rehearse it was kind of quite bizarre, but rehearse it they did. And thank God, because the rehearsal was a disaster. Um, Gehring had boasted quietly with, with, with uh, look, you know, you American pilots are pretty crappy, but my Australian boys, they're, they're the real deal and they'll show you how to do it. Well, 30 Squadron let him down that day because they were late. So that all the pilots, all the crews were briefed. I mean, it was all too hurried. That's, that's the trouble. But they were briefed and they were told to turn up at the, uh, uh, and, and uh, basically perform their manoeuvres over this ship. Um, General Kenny and uh, Wing Commander Gehring watched the rehearsal from a hill and they realised it was a disaster. So they went around again that night and tore these young men a new arsehole, basically, <laughs> saying... Today was not good. Tomorrow has to be better because the Japanese are coming. And sure enough, they got the alert that the Japanese convoy had made its way uh, down New Britain into the Bismarck Sea and were approaching their target of lay. Um, there was not much room for ever. Uh, sorry, not much room for error. Uh, the most feasible place to attack the Japanese convoy was pretty close to their um, their destination point of lay. It was very hard to coordinate it. The weather was on the Japanese convoy's side for the first few days, and then they they thought they were home and home. The Japanese thought they were, they'd lost one ship, a um, a um, uh, Catalina had attacked one of the ships and sunk it and then nothing. And then they actually lost sight of the convoy over the past, uh, uh, over the past 72 hours. But then they found it again. Then it turned up approaching lay a few hours from lay. So this is March the 3rd we're talking of now. And suddenly the weather cleared and all these American and Australian uh, airmen uh, early that morning, got their orders to uh, fly to Cape Ward Hunt, which was a little speck to coordinate the formation. And um, and we're talking about possibly up to 80 or 90, even 100 aircraft, were to coordinate at the, the designated altitude over Cape Ward Hunt and then proceed to the battle area, which was a designated coordinate in the middle of the Bismarck Sea. Uh, and there's a wonderful story of a gun emplacement on Cape Ward Hunt being under construction still, and the army fellows suddenly seeing these bow fighters turn up and start circling, and then the American planes start circling, and suddenly there's a hundred aircraft over their head, and the roar of it was like nothing they'd ever seen. Nothing like this had ever been seen in the Pacific. Uh, um, uh, full stop and nothing would be seen till much later in the Pacific War but this um, this um, uh, tower of aircraft um, assembled over Cape Ward Hunt and got the word to proceed and they did and 
The trouble in writing about the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, David, is that the actual battle only lasted 20 minutes <laughs> um, because it was such an incredible success that that's all it actually took. When the aircraft of the Bismarck Sea uh, a battle assembled, they then made their way, and yes, there were the Japanese convoy. The Japanese um, initially thought that, that, that there's their still because there were quite a few survivors from the battle on the Japanese side and they wrote diaries, some of which were recovered later. And there was like a, a couple of the big ships were having a kind of a parade, like uh, briefings on what to do when you get to lay because we're nearly there. And um, so they were so cocky that they'd succeeded. They basically thought, you know, they'd won. And then suddenly these bow fighters turn up and the bow fighters were ordered to go in first and basically decapitate the ships. That is, try and strafe them with their four 20-millimetre cannon and um, uh, four, or was it six, I can't remember, on the bow fighter, 303 machine guns. Or did they have point fives? I can't remember either. Sorry, the eggheads out there will correct me if I'm wrong, David. Um, and the strange thing happened when the bow fighters started to approach the ships because normally it's very difficult to strafe a ship from stem to stern because the, the ship will manoeuvre and it's very hard to yaw an aircraft to actually keep up with it. But what the Japanese ships did was swing their bows towards the oncoming bow fighters of 30 Squadron because they thought they were, they were torpedo bombers. They were trying to present the smallest possible target for a torpedo run, but they didn't realise they were about to be shot up from, the, from, from bow to stern, and they were. And most of the ships uh, received this really fierce treatment of the bow fighters coming in low, lifting their nose and destroying the decks of the ship, and particularly killing the command structure, literally. Um, the cannons firing into the windows of the bridge in a split second killed the captain, killed the navigation officer, so the people down below on the ship didn't know what was happening. Um, then, sure enough, the Americans started to do their skip bombing, which were the Mitchells that had been developed to drop a bomb low on the water and have it tossed along like a pebble. It's very hard to hit a ship from 20,000 feet or even 8,000 or 5,000 feet, but to get down really low is the, is the way you did it. So that's what happened. So the ships of the Japanese convoy, uh, the, the first one they got through was called 18. This one was called Convoy 81 in some weird kind of symmetry. Um, as I said, 20 minutes was all it took for this incredibly bloody but incredibly one-sided battle to take place. None of the ships got through to lay. They were all checked and um, um, sunk on their 11th hour. Actually, that's not quite true. The One of the ships that had been sunk in the middle of a storm 48 hours earlier picked up, picked up the survivors and raced ahead and dropped them at lay. And they're the only um, offloaded people from the Japanese convoy that arrived at lay, they, uh, but, but, but the rest of the convoy didn't make it. Um, as I said, the, the cargo ships were all made into blazing wrecks. Some of them had 
nothing but aviation fuel. So they, uh, um, they were like sort of flaming torches. The fires were so fierce that the hulls of the ships actually glowed white hot and started to melt is how fierce the heat was from some of them. One of the escorting destroyers was out of, out of control and actually collided with one of the um, cargo ships that was supposed to be escorting. Uh, uh, one of the Japanese destroyers had its stern blown off and that rolled over and sunk. Um, not all the Japanese destroyers were um, sunk. I think two two were sunk, but all the cargo ships were sunk, and that was what was being aimed for. All the left blazing um, dead in the water hulks. Um, the Australians and Americans couldn't believe how easy and how, how successful it had been, and we know what it was like because the great Australian war photographer Damien Pera, who had just happened to attach himself to 30 Squadron RAAF in the weeks prior to the battle, had brought his movie camera along for the ride, so to speak, and filmed the battle, filmed it brilliantly. And a few weeks later, the Australian newsreel cinemas were showing um, Damien Perra's uh, film Bismarck Sea Convoy Destroyed and you can see it on YouTube and it is quite amazing. Michael continues telling us about his book in podcast number 46. Leave a comment on our Facebook page and if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. Your review helps others find our podcast. You can help support this podcast via Patreon or buy me a coffee. The links are on our website and your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.